Good morning. Um, Mark also, your pastor Mark has also pulled me up a few hills on my bike too, so between Foster and uh, Mark, I'm usually the third one kind of huffing and puffing behind him. I grew up a, in Montana on Flathead Lake. Um, how many of you have been over to Montana, been to Flathead? Okay, great. Okay, good. Um, growing up on Flathead, we claimed, um, and I don't know where this is, we claimed it was the largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi. And I don't know how that compares to other large lakes, but I grew up being told that this was the largest. Um, as a boy, I vividly remember the late summer storms that would blow down along the Rockies and whip the lake up into whitecaps. And I loved these storms, especially if I was at Grandma and Grandpa's house when they hit. And that was because Grandpa had an old 14-foot uh, aluminum fishing boat with a uh, battered 7.5 Evinrude outboard engine on the back. And as kids, we were allowed uh, to putt around Hughes Bay and occasionally take the boat out into the bigger lake itself to fish. And several times when a storm was gathering on the lake, uh, my older cousins and my sister and I got permission to take uh, the boat out. And we would strap on those uh, orange life vests, the ones that kind of, that feel really uncool now as adults. Um, and we would nose the boat out uh, toward the mouth of the bay as the winds would pick up. And our plan on these occasions was simple. We wanted to jump some waves. Talk about joy as a boy, uh, wildly yelling. Usually I was in the very front bow of the boat as we would shoot up over one wave and then down into the trough and water would splash over the, the bow of the boat. Um, years later now, as a parent with my own kids, I can assure you I would never let them do anything like what we used to do <laughs> when we visit my parents in Montana or on any body of water here in Washington. Mainly because on more than one occasion when we were out there as kids, uh, we found ourselves too far out in the lake, uh, being slammed by waves that were too big for the boat. And our scripture today from Matthew 14 is about a storm on another lake. And this storm puts uh, my memories of wave jumping on Flathead into perspective. As the disciples of Jesus here in the text are truly afraid. And I think we need to take their fear seriously because if you think about it, these are experienced sailors. They've grown up on this particular body of water. And yet they've never been out in a storm like this one before. There's another distinction between our Sea of Galilee story in the scripture today and the storms that I experienced as a kid in Montana. For the disciples, there's no land in sight. There's no bay behind them and there's no dock tucked into that bay that they can retreat to. The setting for their encounter with Jesus today is open, ugly water and whipping wind after dark has fallen like a curtain on the sea. For them, the end of the story today is anything but certain. And so, with that kind of setting in mind, I want you to listen for God's word as it comes to us today from Matthew 14. We'll be beginning in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. 
Now, I'm, I'm sure all of you have the whole chapter of Matthew 14 completely memorized. And so you know exactly what came before this. But if you happen to forget, uh, this story that we're reading today comes right at the end of one of the most famous miracle stories in all of the Gospels, where Jesus uh, multiplies the loaves and the fish uh, so that he comes up with seafood and crusty French bread for over 5,000 people. It's immediately after this that he makes the disciples get into the boat to go on ahead to the other side. Well, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. By this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Would you join me in prayer? God, would you take these words from Scripture and make them come alive in a new way for us today. May we not only hear them, may our lives be changed by your Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. Amen. There's something else that I loved uh, in addition to jumping waves as a kid. I have grown up loving good stories. And one of my favorites in scripture is the one that I just read. This story about Jesus walking on the water in the midst of a furious storm. And I think that I loved this. Uh, Foster actually says he hated this story. So we have a little difference between friends there on this particular story. But I think the reason I love this story uh, is because I'm a big fan of comic books. And um, this story seemed to give me a glimpse of a superhero Jesus, who after a little prayer up on the mountain, lets drop his everyday disguise as carpenter turned teacher and does something that's humanly impossible. In my mind's eye as a child, his rough robe became more of a billowing cape. As here in Matthew 14, he, like some comic book Superman, glides out through the storm to save his sidekick disciples who are stuck in a sinking boat. Maybe you've read this story much the same way over the years. A little like a Marvel comics or a DC comics adventure from the safety of a chair at home, or the security of a pew or a padded chair here at church. That's how I used to read this story. But given the ongoing uncertainty and turmoil in our world, this is not how I read the story today. Now I'm not just reading about a boat in a storm. Instead, particularly given everything that's going on in our world and the upheaval that we're still dealing with from the pandemic, it feels to me like I'm in the boat myself. 
And unlike my memories of jumping waves as a kid, I don't want to be in this boat. The waves are breaking over the bow. There's no dock nearby, it's dark, and the wind doesn't seem to be letting up. Maybe I'm not the only one that is in the boat today. Maybe you're not just reading about these waves either in the text, but actually feeling them slam into you too, one after the other. And for you too, it feels like the wind is anything but done. Maybe that's because your whole world turned upside down in the last few years due to the pandemic. Or maybe because prices are rising, you don't know if you're going to be able to keep up with the bills that you have as they keep rolling in. Or maybe for you, you're in the boat for medical reasons. For you, the storm started in a doctor's office a few weeks ago. And the waves that are coming over the bow for you are called side effects and survival percentages for you or someone you love. Or maybe for you, the storm centers around desperation and despair in a relationship, a marriage that you think is largely a lie, a conflict with your kids or your siblings or your parents. Maybe the waves for you are depression or waves of anxiety or addiction or a death that punched a hole in the side of your boat. By this time, Matthew writes, the boat battered by the waves was far from the land for the wind was against them. So my first question for you today is this, where are you as we read this text? Are you reading about this boat in the storm, or is there a chance that you're in the boat? I can tell you that this story reads very differently if we're in the boat rather than just watching it unfold on the page. And it occurs to me that one of the ways that we know that we're in the boat is that we, we don't recognize Jesus when he appears in our life. Early in the morning, Jesus walking to them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. I got to share with you, and maybe you felt this too, my knee-jerk reaction to the disciples in so many of the stories recorded in the Gospels is uh, to scoff at their anxieties and their ignorance. They're repeated examples of what seems to me like cluelessness. I think on several occasions I've thought, what blockheads, what is it going to take for them to realize who Jesus is and what's going on? They don't get it. But that is my padded pew reaction. It's entirely different when I find myself in the boat with them in the storm. When I find myself in the boat in the storm, I'm hollering for all I'm worth too, just as terrified, just as clueless and just as likely to assume that Jesus, when Jesus arrives in my life, is a threat to me rather than salvation. And then Jesus speaks. Immediately, Matthew writes, Jesus speaks into their fear and says, simply take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. We don't know if they believed him or not. The text doesn't tell us. All we know is that Peter, brash, uh, shoot first, think later, Peter, 
yells back, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus says simply one word, come. And Peter does. In the midst of the storm, in the middle of the night, and all by himself, Peter goes over the side of the boat and starts to walk toward Jesus. And Matthew doesn't tell us if he gets five steps from the boat, or 10, or 15, before what he is doing sinks in, pun completely intended, and he goes down, crying out again in fear, Lord, save me. And for the third time in this short story, Matthew says immediately. Peter cries out and immediately Jesus reaches out his hand and pulls him up. And as Jesus does this, Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? For a moment, I want you to pretend that all of us in the room are Greek scholars. And as Greek scholars, we together have noticed something that folks that just know English uh, might not have noticed in the text. Jesus doesn't just call Peter, um, suggest that he's a little shy in the faith department here. He actually calls Peter a little faith. He says, you little faith, why did you doubt? And I think it matters a great deal to all of us how Jesus says this. Is he angry at Peter? You little faith, why did you doubt? Or is he scornful? You little faith, why did you doubt? Or is what Peter hears in Jesus' voice as Jesus pulls him up, love? You little faith, why did you doubt? My money, all of my money, is on the last one, on love. And I say this because our God doesn't call us to get out of the boat, simply to be an object lesson for others. Our God doesn't call us to get out of the boat, to get a cosmic laugh when we sink. Our God doesn't call us to get out of the boat, to prove our frailty, or as a test that he knows that we will fail, because we all are the very best of us little faiths. No, Jesus calls us to leave the imagined safety of our boat for nothing less than the fierce joy of walking with him on the water, where the wind and the waves do nothing more than reveal who he is and who we can become as we take his hand. How do we get out of the boat? Well, that's simple. We just do it. It's not easy, though. The real question that we need to ask is why would we risk it? Here's the reason. Out of the boat is where we're going to meet Jesus. Jesus calls us to leave the imagined safety of our boat in order to meet him where he is, out in the water, out in the world, not in the boat. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. Almost every commentator on this passage, going all the way back to the earliest church fathers and mothers, reads this passage not just as a miracle story, but also as a powerful metaphor for Christ's call to us in the church. The boat in this metaphor is the church. 
It's important to know that in verse 22, Jesus tells the disciples to get into the boat in the first place. Read metaphorically the church. As he does, he makes no promises of smooth sailing. Storms always come and they always will. You may uh, have heard at some point in your life the words from Martin Luther, him, a mighty fortress is our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Could that one little word today be the word come? Come, Jesus says to Peter. Come, Jesus says to you and to me. Jesus calls us to leave the imagined safety of our boat for the fierce joy of walking with him on the water. Let me tell you um, one of the biggest reasons this story has become my own story. Foster, in his introduction, said that um, I was a pastor at First Presbyterian Church 13 years ago. Uh, I left that to launch this nonprofit called Big Table that has no precedent anywhere in the country. Um, we are called uh, to care for those in the restaurant and hospitality industry. It's the largest industry in the nation. Um, by a long shot. It's also the industry that has the highest concentration of need when you look at just about any statistic, whether that's addiction rates or poverty rates or stress levels, lack of insurance, all of the most, uh, the, all of the things that would put people at high risk are concentrated in the restaurant and hospitality industry far more than any other industry. But the interesting part is no one's doing anything about it because it's the hospitality industry. When you walk into a restaurant, when you walk into a hotel, you're going to be greeted by someone who by definition has a job and has a smile on their face. So unless you've worked in the industry and know how tough it is, you're not going to ever imagine that the person that's caring for you might be about to get evicted from their house, might be struggling with addiction horribly themselves might be about uh, to go under financially. When I uh, started Big Table, it was a fluke. I, had, um, I was a pastor during the day. I started moonlighting as a restaurant critic at night. I worked for the Spokesman Review for the Inlander and for Spokane Quarterly Living. Um, and I didn't have anything like Big Table in my mind when I started. Um, the editors just told me that they would pay for me to go out and eat. Uh, and since I really love food and I enjoy writing, uh, this was pretty much a no-brainer. Um, but the truth is that God had more in mind for me than just a few free meals. And as I started writing about the industry, God opened my eyes to the needs in the industry. Um, if that wasn't enough, because um, again, I'm, I was a pastor, I think I'm a decent pastor, uh, but I'm not an entrepreneur. And uh, after noticing the need, I just thought, well, I wonder if there's another nonprofit somewhere in the country that's doing this so I can give a little bit of the money that I'm making as a restaurant critic, uh, tithe it to, to that industry. I literally couldn't find another nonprofit. This was 2006. 
in the entire country caring for the largest industry in the country with the highest concentration of need. And to give you some kind of frame of reference for that, at that point there were a million and a half nonprofits registered with the IRS, a million and a half, and there wasn't one caring for the largest industry in the country with the highest concentration of need. That just doesn't make any sense unless we believe the smiles that these folks are okay. Um, maybe if you're a person who loves animals, um, I don't want to offend you, but um, in that, at that time there were 30,000 nonprofits that were caring for dogs and cats, which out of a million and a half, 30,000, okay, I'll, I'll spot the dogs and cats, 30,000 nonprofits. But if that's the case, wouldn't there be 100,000 caring for the folks most in need? But there wasn't. Um, but I didn't know what to do until uh, the middle of the night, one night, when God woke me up out of a deep sleep, and this is what happened. Completely asleep, instantly wide awake, so abrupt that I got out of bed, walked to the foot of the bed, and just stood there in the dark. The rest of the family was gone, so I'm home alone. And I was listening, yeah, is there a doorbell that rang, or did a window break? What woke me up? And I heard a voice, and the voice said, and this is way more connected to where I started as an Assemblies of God pastor's son than the Presbyterian uh, church that I was attending and leading at the time. But I heard this voice say, Kevin, I need a pastor for the restaurant industry. Are you interested? And it was so distinct and it was so clear that I knew I had to answer. And this is a direct quote. I said, uh, uh, yeah. But what would that look like? And the reason I asked that question is I thought I had just been offered a job by, I thought, God, um, that I knew was a guaranteed failure. Because I knew after five years of writing about the restaurant and hospitality industry that not a single person in that industry ever wanted a pastor. Anytime I mentioned I was a restaurant critic or a food writer, everyone wanted to talk to me. The instant they found out I was a pastor, it was the end of the conversation, just like that. I mean, it was like cockroaches when you turn on a light. Everyone scattered. So in the middle of the night, when I, this voice says, Kevin, I need a pastor for the industry, I honestly didn't know, so I asked, what would that look like? And there in a pitch black bedroom in front of me, all of a sudden, I saw a Bible that was open to Acts chapter 2 lit up in front of me. And as I'm reading the end of that chapter in Acts where Luke describes the early church for me, two phrases just jumped off the page at me. The first one was they ate together. And if anyone had a need, they took care of each other. And that is exactly what we do. Um, I could tell you more about what Big Table does now, but that's it, really. We create relationships with folks in the industry and we care for them. The name Big Table, there literally is a Big Table. And we do these amazing dinners with the best chefs in the community. And who's sitting at the table are servers and dishwashers and housekeepers. The folks who would normally serve us get served for a night. And then we say to them, who do you know that's hurting that we could care for? It's just this amazing model of how God can transform lives through relationships. We have a team here in Spokane now. We've expanded. Uh, we have a team in San Diego that's going gangbusters. And just last year, as the pandemic started to ease, we launched a team in Nashville. Tomorrow, I'm getting on a plane to go to Colorado Springs. 
uh, because God seems to be bubbling something up there as a possible next site for Big Table. All of that to say, looking back at that middle of the night conversation, what God was doing in my life was God was asking me to do the same thing he asked of Peter, get out of the boat. It took me longer than it took Peter. In fact, it took two years for me to get up the courage to leave a very secure job with insurance and benefits and all of the pieces that come with an established job to do something that literally no one understood. But on December 28, 2008, at 9.15 in the morning, my friends at First Press helped me officially go over the side of the boat. And humanly speaking, that was the worst possible time. If you think back to 2008, if you were old enough to think back to 2008, um, that was the middle of this meltdown economically as a country. The stock market had crashed. Um, panic was threatening to overtake the world. The waves, to use the metaphors of our text, were big. The wind was against us and it was dark. But Jesus was calling and what Jesus was saying to me at that point was, Kevin, I need someone to love my kids in the restaurant hospitality industry. Most of them aren't even close to the boat. But I love them and I need you to love them too. So come. In the end, I did, terrified, but I did it. Um, but I don't think that's the end of the story. I think God is calling and called not just me, but God is calling each of you too. But here's the profoundly unsettling part of this story. God's not in the boat. Jesus is out there in the storm on the water. And if you let me push the metaphor a little bit, I don't think Jesus is alone out there on the water. The water is full of people going down. And I think that it's been Christ's plan all along as we get out of the boat and Jesus grabs a hold of our hand that we would reach down and pull someone else up who's sinking. Now let me be clear what Jesus' call, I think, is to each of you here at New Creation, not just together, but individually. Jesus isn't just calling us to scoot over and make room in a seat next to us for someone else. Jesus is calling from the midst of a storm and out in the water with waves all around. And he's inviting you, he's asking you to get out of the boat. I wish I could say after 13 years that the water's just fine that the storm was just a passing squall. But that wouldn't be true in my life, and I bet it won't be true in yours. There are days that I am still terrified. But the last 13 years have also been some of the most wonderful, amazing years of my life. And I feel like I get to be more a pastor now, just not using that title, than I ever was when I had an office with stained glass windows downtown. And the congregation that I get to serve congregation, in quotes, is huge. It's been either invisible for far too many years or dismissed as loose, living, hard-drinking screw-ups who need to get their lives straightened out before they're ever worth God's time. Now, this picture, by the way, was taken, if you've been to Downriver Grill, 
uh, on Northwest Boulevard. That's in the patio along the side. Um, and those folks are folks in the industry that we've had the opportunity to care for around the big table. Earlier I asked if uh, you were in the boat. Now let me ask you a second question. Are you ready to get out of the boat? I don't know exactly what getting out of the boat would mean for you here as a congregation at New Creation or for you individually. I'd be overjoyed if some of you might feel called to be part of what we're doing at Big Table. And in the ministry center afterwards, I've got some brochures and a little bit of information about a really cool thing that we do called Unexpected Twenties. I'd love to share that with you. But it may be that God is calling you to care for someone else who's fighting to stay afloat in our world. And maybe the second that I even ask the question, who might God be calling you to, you know immediately who that is. Because those are people that you see that no one else seems to notice. That's the challenge, though. What I can tell you is if you take the courage and are willing to step out of the boat and walk toward Jesus, this is where the deepest joy and the greatest adventure of the Christ-formed life is to be found. Not in the boat in the storm, but out on the open water with Jesus. Is it safe? Absolutely not. But this is exactly where we meet Jesus. Come, he says, slip over the side and come. Would you join me in prayer? God, out of all of the distractions in our lives, uh, would we hear your voice clearly? And hear your voice calling us to come, to come to you, but to also realize where you are. We ask that you would give us the courage to do what Peter did. In your name, we ask. Amen.